All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. Really good to have you with us today. Before I dive in, I want to give you an idea of what's coming up the next couple of weeks. Next weekend is Bob Merritt's final message, a full message, actually, at this church. And I read it this morning, and it's fantastic, as you would expect. And so if there's somebody in your life, I'm just saying, if you have a person that you're like, boy, I've been praying for this person to come to church and to come and know Christ, it would be the perfect weekend to invite them. And then the following weekend is his final weekend with us, and we're doing a celebration of his 28 years as senior pastor. We've got some special guests, We've got some really fun videos for you. We think it's going to be a, really a great weekend again. If you are someone who doesn't normally attend the Lionel Lakes campus, so that you're at one of our other eight campuses, I'm going to ask you to stay at your campus, okay? Bob's not going to be high-fiving people in the audience, and when he's done, we're not giving out gifts like Oprah or anything like that. So you're going to get the exact same experience at your campus. We just want to make sure it's not too full here at Lionel Lakes. All right, we are in the middle of a series called What Matters Most, and I've been thinking a lot about that question. What matters most to you? Would you say it's your family and your friends? Would you say it's your career or your character? Of all the things in your life that you do and that you think about and that you want to be remembered for, what is it that comes to the top for you? I think all those are important, but as I've sat with that question, there really is one thing that tops them all. When you think about it, it is the most important question. And the question is, where will you spend eternity? A few weeks ago, I spoke here at Eaglebrook, and after the morning services on Sunday, I went home to grab a quick nap. And when I woke up, I turned on my phone, and I had about 15 text messages. And the first one said, did you hear about Kobe? And the next one said, crazy about Kobe. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And so I went on ESPN and I saw this picture of Kobe Bryant. And below in parentheses was the dates, 1978 to 2020. And it jolted me a little bit because I was born in the year 1978. Kobe Bryant was 41 years old, just like I am. When his helicopter went down, he was on his way to his 13-year-old daughter's basketball game. And that night, I was driving my 14-year-old son and my 12-year-old son to basketball tryouts. As we were in the car driving to these tryouts, my boys kept asking me all kinds of questions. And then my son, who was in the backseat, couldn't hear. And so I was having to repeat myself. And at one point, I just got really annoyed. And then I looked out the window and I thought, you know, there might come a day when I would do anything to be asked a question by my son. And I looked out and I thought, Lord, thank you for this moment. Those moments aren't guaranteed. Kobe Bryant woke up that morning and went to the seven o'clock mass at the Catholic church that he attended. He then boarded a helicopter with his daughter and seven others. And you can almost imagine these 13-year-old girls giggling and laughing like middle school girls do. And then the parents were talking about who they were playing later that day and if it was a good team or not. And then you imagine that moment when Kobe realizes that the helicopter is going down. I envision him grabbing his 13-year-old daughter in his arms to try to shield her. But there was nothing he could do. When a tragedy like that strikes, you can't help but wonder what matters most. When you and me, when we breathe our last breath here on earth, what will be most important to us? 
Will it be our legacy? Will it be how many people cry at our funeral? Will it be how long people remember our name for? Again, all of those are important, but Kobe Bryant had each of those. He was a legend. He was one of the greatest basketball players who's ever played the game. He had a net worth of over $700 million. Good looking, charismatic. He had just won an Oscar. He was a future Hall of Famer. When he died, grown men wept and people set up memorials all throughout Los Angeles. He was living the life that many of us aspire to, that many of us want to live. But I want to suggest to you today that as important as all of those things might seem, they're not the most important. The most important is where will you spend eternity? If Kobe and the eight others who were on the helicopter that morning, if they're in heaven right now, then they are experiencing a joy beyond anything that we can comprehend. But if there is no life after death, as some people claim and teach, then they're just gone. And all we have is the memories. Thankfully, according to Jesus, there is life after death for every single person. That you can live with the assurance and the peace and the hope of knowing that your eternity is secure. And I want this for every single one of you today. In fact, let me give you three truths that I hope that you believe about eternal life. And the first one is this. All roads don't lead to heaven. Jesus talks about this very directly in what I think is one of his most sobering teachings. It's found in Matthew 7. He says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. There's not many different ways to get there. He says there's only one. It's through the narrow gate. He goes on to say the highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose the easy way. But the gateway to life is small and the road is narrow and only a few ever find it. Jesus says that there's two different roads. There's a wide road and there's a narrow road. There's a road that leads to life and there's a road that leads to death. When I graduated from college, my mom and I decided that we were going to take a trip to Ireland. My mom had grown up in an Irish family and so we'd always kind of wanted to go visit. And so it was my mom, my dad, myself, and my wife, Sarah, that went. And when we got there, we rented a car and they gave us a huge SUV. It was like a Toyota Sequoia, but a little bit bigger than that. And right away, my dad kind of giggled, and he's like, these Europeans are going to think we're a bunch of rich Americans. Didn't exactly turn out like that, actually. You see, in Ireland, the streets are lined with cobblestone fences. It's just like it is in the pictures. But what you don't realize from the pictures is that these cobblestone fences take up what is our shoulder. Then the actual road is what we would consider to be about one and a half lanes. So every time another car would come in the opposite direction, we were like Shaquille O'Neal trying to squeeze in as the last person in an elevator. You know, you kind of move over along by this fence, trying to let the other person get by. And sometimes it didn't always work out that well. My dad clipped a parked car as we were driving through a town, took off our side mirror. Then he backed into a little Peugeot at a bed and breakfast. Tiny car, didn't even see it in the rearview mirror. And so we would be at these beautiful bed and breakfasts, and my dad would be lying there at night, 
thinking tomorrow we die. Like, there's no way we're going to get through another day without getting into a major accident. Here's my point. We thought we were going to be on a wide road, but we were on a narrow road. And that cost us our side mirror and insurance deposit. (laughs) Jesus says that sometimes it's the opposite is true in life. That there are people who think they're on the narrow road, but they're really on the wide road. And that cost them eternity with God and loved ones. Look again at what Jesus says in the verse. He says, the highway to hell is broad. Now, if you're a child of the 80s and maybe not real familiar with the Bible, you're thinking, did Jesus quote ACDC? You're like, Jesus, I like this dude. Pretty sure Jesus was the first to coin that phrase. Okay, just so we're all on the same page. The highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose the easy way. Notice how he describes this wide road. He says it's easy. And the reason that it's so easy is because there's a lot of people on that road. A couple months ago, I took my three oldest sons to a high school basketball game at Target Center. And there was over 17,000 people there at a high school basketball game. It's because LeBron James's son, Bronny James, was playing with his Sierra Cannon team from California, and they were playing Minnehaha Academy from here in Minnesota, and you'll be grateful to know the Minnesota team won. But I pulled into ramp A and got into the Skyway, and right away I went, whoa. There was a line of people that stretched all the way from Target Center, down the Skyway, around the corner, all the way down to ramp A. They spread across the entire skyway for a high school game. If I was one of the Timberwolves players, I'd be like, what is going on here? (laughs) Nobody comes to that, that many people come to a Timberwolves game. But I stood there and my oldest son was like, well, maybe we can go around here and get through there. And I said, we're never gonna make it. The easiest thing for us to do is simply follow the crowd. Jesus says the same thing can be true in life. The easiest thing to do is to follow the crowd. The easiest thing to do is to look around and go, well, what are you guys doing? I'm going to do that as well. What do the majority of Americans believe about that? What's kind of the cool thing to believe right now? I'll believe that. What's the thing that won't get me made fun of? Well, I don't want to stand out. I don't want people to make fun of me. I don't want people to rip on me or criticize me. So I'm just going to believe what you believe. It's the wide road. The wide road is comprised of people who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that that road, though many people may seem to be on it, is a road that leads to destruction. He says, though, there's another road. It's a narrow road. There might be fewer people on that road. Which is why at times you look around your school or your place of employment and you go, what? doesn't anybody else believe this? Isn't anybody else willing to stand up for the truth? Isn't anybody else willing to speak up for their faith? It can feel lonely at times on the narrow road. But Jesus says that's the road that leads to eternal life. That's the road that leads to abundant life. When my wife was growing up as a kid, she used to attend this Baptist church that was kind of near her mom's apartment, and they used to sing this song that talked about different ways that you can't get to heaven. So one of the verses of the song was, you can't get to heaven in a car. Oh, no. Can't get to heaven in a car because you know a car don't go that far. 
And every verse of the song was a different way that you couldn't get to heaven. Now, I don't know if this is real or not, or if this was some mischievous middle school student that made this up, but one of the lyrics of the song was, you can't get to heaven by smoking pot. Oh, no. Can't get to heaven by smoking pot because you'll think you're there and you're really not. My wife told this to me for the first time. I said, well, what church did you go to? Like, if my kids came home and they were singing that song, I'd be like, whoa, boy. But the idea of the song is, is, is true. There, there's all these different ideas out there on how a person can get to heaven. But there's really only one way. You don't get to heaven by believing that God exists. Even Satan believes that. You don't get to heaven by simply being a good person. The Bible is so refreshingly simple on this. Romans 3.22 says this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Righteousness means to be in right standing with God. It means that you have a right relationship with God. How do you get that right relationship? He says it's through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And this faith or this belief, again, it's not a belief that God exists. It's not a faith that everything's just going to work out okay in the end. It's not a faith in a higher power or positive energy. It's faith in a person. And his name is Jesus. The second truth about eternal life that I hope that you'll believe is this, that God desires everyone to be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, God wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. Now, everybody isn't saved, but that's because people choose to reject Christ and they don't believe it. They don't want to believe it for whatever reason, but God doesn't enjoy that. God doesn't want that. This is so important to understand. About a month ago, I saw an interview that Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers did, and he was being interviewed by his girlfriend, Danica Patrick, who's a NASCAR driver, and I realized that we have a lot of Vikings fans who are here. And so if I told you a story about Aaron Rodgers saving a little puppy from a drainage ditch, you would go, oh, I'm a cat person now. <laughs> and you say, anything that guy does, I just can't stand that guy, I don't like him. I also realized that we have some Packers fans who are here, which goes to show you that all are welcome. <laughs> I have people ask me, is everybody welcome at your church? I'm like, well, we have Packers fans. Okay, clearly everybody's welcome. But I realized that if I told you a story about Aaron Rodgers kicking a little puppy, you'd say, well, the puppy deserved it. I mean, you just think anything he does is great. I want both groups to set that aside for just a moment. Because I'm not showing this video because he's a professional athlete or a quarterback. I'm showing it because he talks about his journey away from believing in God. And he does so in a way that I think is quite thoughtful and articulate. It makes for a good dialogue partner. But he says something in this video that as a pastor, if it's true, it really honestly breaks my heart. And so I want to show you part of this interview, and then I'll come up afterwards and comment. Church was just, you just had to go. Your parents made you go. You wake up, you put some clothes on, you go. And you can't wait to get back and watch the second game of the day in the NFL on TV. But uh, I, I started going to Young Life, and that's where I met Matt Hawk, who you know, Matt. And Matt was leading our Young Life group there for a while, and 
he was the first Christian that I met where I was like, he's just a really rad guy to be around. Uh, I kind of like, you know, I, the way that he talks about Jesus and the way that he talks about um, what it means to have a relationship with Christ. Like, that's pretty cool. There's not really a young life for college. It's, it gets into more organized, you know, athletes in action or whatever it might be, campus organizations. And I just didn't find any connection points with with those things and started questioning things and had friends who had other beliefs and uh, enjoyed learning. That's kind of a part of my life. had some good friendships along the way that uh, helped me, you know, to figure out what exactly I wanted to believe in. And ultimately it was that uh, rules and regulations and binary systems um, don't really resonate with me. How far back can you go and identify like, yeah, I thought it was weird when I was four, like, or whatever. Is there an example? Can you identify when the skeptic and the questioner in you was really yeah. present? I mean, high school for sure, because I had two groups I was going to. I was going to, a, to church on Sundays and then to Young Life on Mondays. And Young Life on Monday welcomed everyone. You know, it's like, right. come as you are. Be there at 729. Yep. and like be ready for some fun. And it was fun, and we had a great time. Church on Sundays was like more, you know, make sure you dress a certain way and don't right. bring that person, and this person's going to get looked at strangely if they show up. And yeah. I think, it, you know, again, it's very black and white, uh, binary in binary sense, but I don't think it's very welcoming. Uh, religion can be a crutch, can be a... Um, can be something that people have to have to make themselves feel better. And because it's set a binary, it's us and them. It's saved and unsaved. It's heaven and hell. It's enlightened and heathen. It's holy and righteous and sinner and filthy. And that makes, I think that makes a lot of people feel better about themselves. Is it, oh, you know, I have... You know, I got Jesus, and you know, I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven. And there's only 144,000 of us going, even though there's seven billion people on the planet. Uh, and you know, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet, you know, to a fiery hell. Like, what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being? wants to condemn most of his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this. All right, there's a lot to cover there, so let me just offer a few thoughts. First of all, I don't resonate with rules, regulations, and binary systems either. I resonate with truth and love. I want to know what's true. If heaven and hell are real, if that's true, then that's the issue for me. It's not so much, do you like that idea? Does that idea resonate with me? I really want to know, is it true? And I'm guessing that Aaron would feel the same way as well. But Christianity is not about rules and regulations. It's about knowing God and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, yes, in relationships, there are some rules. If you're dating someone right now or you're married to someone right now, I'm guessing you have some rules. They might be spoken, they might be unspoken, but one of them might be, don't cheat on me. Let's not cheat on each other. You do that rule not because you have to, but because you love that other person and you want to honor them. 
It's the same way with Jesus. We obey him. We obey those rules, not because we necessarily have to, but because we love Jesus and we want to honor him with our life. But then Aaron goes on to say that one of the big turnoffs for him is Christians who walk around with an air of superiority, like I'm going to heaven and you're not going to heaven. And I don't doubt that he may have encountered some people who have that attitude, but I'll just speak for myself. I have never thought that way. There's never been one time in my life where I thought, oh, well, I'm going to heaven, so I'm so much better than everyone else. One of my favorite quotes is that Christians are beggars telling other beggars where they can find some food. In other words, I'm as sinful as the next person. If I have eternal life, it's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I'm more talented. It's purely by the grace of God. It's purely because of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so I look at other people who may not believe that, and, and I think to myself, man, I want you to have this. I want you to experience the grace and the love and the presence of God that has completely changed my life. Our church is like that. Our church is more like the young life that he described. This is not a church where, oh, don't bring that person or don't dress that way. It's a church where we want every single person to come to know Christ. But then finally, Aaron says that for him, one of the major issues is that he believes only 144,000 are going to go to heaven and that God enjoys condemning everyone else to hell. And that was the statement that as a pastor broke my heart. Because I don't know of one biblical scholar who believes that. The number 144,000, it is found in the Bible. It's found in Revelation chapter 7. And I'm going to read it to you just so you can see it for yourself. But John here is speaking, and he has a vision of what heaven and what the end of this earth is going to be like. And he says this, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. There's two possible interpretations of this verse. The first one is that when Jesus Christ returns, 144,000 Jewish people are going to turn to him in faith. It's not talking about everybody in all of humanity. He's talking about a very specific group from the tribes of Israel. Another possible interpretation is that this number is symbolic. Many of the numbers in Revelation were. If you take 12, which is the number of tribes of Israel, and you multiply it by 12,000, you get this number 144,000. Regardless of whichever those two interpretations you choose, no scholar that I know of believes that only 144,000 people in history are going to be going to heaven. That began as a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. They originally taught that only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses were going to go to heaven. That is until there became more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. And they kind of, you know, they kind of moved, there was some wiggle room there. But Aaron takes that belief and uses it to then say that God enjoys condemning his creation to hell. And if I ever had a chance to talk to Aaron face to face, I would say, let me just show you some verses right from the Bible that share God's heart. 1 Timothy 2, God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Not just as some, he would want everyone to believe that. 2 Peter, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Now, people do perish because for whatever reason, they say, I don't believe it or I don't want to believe it. But God doesn't enjoy that. I, I need you to know this today, that no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how bad you've sinned in the past, no matter what your church background was like growing up as a kid or what you did in college, Jesus Christ loves you and wants a relationship with you. Gender, ethnicity, political beliefs, I could go on and on. Jesus Christ loves you and wants a relationship with you. And that leads to the third truth about eternity. And it's this, our life has a deadline. Your life, my life, it has a deadline. Years ago, I used to teach a class at Northwestern University on public speaking for people who are going into ministry. And, and it was a graduate level course. And so a lot of these students were working a full-time job and trying to get their master's degree. And so as the professor, I would try to be lenient. I would email them before class started and I said, hey, if you need an extension on your paper, just let me know beforehand and we can work that out. But it had to be beforehand. I would say, you, you can't email me two days after the paper was due and then ask for an extension. And this would happen almost every time I would teach. I got an email from a guy one time, two days after the paper was due. He said, sorry, my blood pressure's been up. I'll get the paper to you when I can. I'm like, now my blood pressure's up. <laughs> Another time I had a student email me, or actually he Facebook messaged me three weeks into the class. He had not done any of the assignments yet. And he sent me this Facebook message three weeks in. I'm going to read part of it to you. He said, Prof, I need more time to turn in my assignment. I'm moving, trying to figure out how to be married, aren't we all, <laughs> and trying to find a ministry position. All are bearing much weight on me right now. I hope it's not too late to jump back in, but I find myself three weeks behind. I need to make at least a B. And I got this, and I was thinking, nobody's just going to hand you a B while you figure out how to be married. Welcome to the real world, Mr. Millennial. And I don't even like it when people make fun of millennials, but this is the kind of thing that millennials get frustrated about. They're like, dude, you're giving us a bad name. And so I was very kind in my response, but I, I tried to get him to see at some point you got to learn how to hit a deadline. If you want to go into ministry, you can't just come up in front of your church on the weekend and go, you know, it's really been a busy week. <laughs> Marriage, first year, whew, and... Uh, remodeling our basement. You just got a lot going on. I don't have a sermon for you, but you know, if you come back next week, I think I'll have one, you know, probably be a B kind of sermon, nothing great or an A, but it'll be a B for you. I said, at some point you got to learn how to hit a deadline. That's true in life. It's also true in death. Here's the reality. Our life has a deadline. Many people try to bargain with God and they say things like, oh, you know, I just want to have some fun while I'm in college. And, you know, when I graduate, you know, get married, have kids, I'll start coming to church regularly then. Or they say things like, you know, one day, God, one, one, I know, I know I should make you more of a priority, but I'm just, I'm busy with work and kids. I mean, just, just one day, God. But you don't know when that deadline is. 
And in that moment, you don't want to stand before God and go, oh, I just, I just need an extension. Because 2 Peter 3 says that he's given us an extension. The reason that Jesus hasn't returned yet is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He's waiting for people to repent. He's given us day after day, extension after extension, breath after breath. But one day our deadline will come. And I don't want you to be caught off guard. Several years ago when my daughter was just in preschool, she met this other girl in her class whose dad was also a pastor at a different church. And they kind of became friends. And so my wife invited this girl and her mom, Crystal, over to our house for a play date. And Crystal, the mom, was one of these people who just has a gentle spirit about her. There was a godliness, there was a sweetness about her spirit that just shone through. In fact, at one point, my wife went upstairs to check on the girls because they were upstairs playing. And when she came down, Crystal was in our living room. And her back was turned to Sarah. She didn't even see her in the room. But she was rocking her little baby and she was singing along to a worship song that was on the radio. Months later, Crystal took her oldest daughter on a mommy-daughter trip. They spent the day swimming with dolphins. And on the bus ride back to their resort, they were hit by a large truck. And Crystal died. Her daughter broke her clavicle bone, but lived. I wouldn't say that my wife and I knew Crystal really well, but we knew her well enough to be heartbroken by this. My wife couldn't sleep one night, and she was just praying for the family. And she pictured Crystal standing in our living room. And she remembered the song that she was singing along with on the radio. It was a song called Even So by Christian Stanfield. And the lyrics of the song, they say this. Jesus is coming soon. All will be made new. Like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our king, even so, come. Lord Jesus, come. And as Sarah thought about the lyrics of that song, she thought Crystal got her reward early. As painful as it was for all of us, she was the bride who was now in the presence of her groom. She was with her king. And she had been made new. Friends, your life has a deadline. One day you're swimming with dolphins and the next moment you are standing before Almighty God. One moment you're boarding a helicopter on your way to your daughter's basketball game and the next moment you're in eternity. And it will be like that for all of us. Don't wait. Don't put this off another moment. If you're not sure what road you're on right now, step off the wide road and get onto the narrow road that Crystal was on. The Bible says that we've all sinned and the penalty of sin is death. Physical death, but spiritual separation from God as well. But God loved you so much that he sent his son 
his only son to die in your place. To pay the penalty that you could never pay for yourself. So that if you will put your faith in him, your trust in him, you too will defeat death and receive the gift of eternal life. And you don't have to wait until you die to experience that gift. You can have the peace and the assurance and the hope and the love and presence of God in your life right now. And so across our campuses, I want to lead us in a prayer. And if you're not sure what road you're on, if you think maybe you're on this road, but you're not really sure, I, I want you to get that settled today. To put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And there might be others of us here who you've prayed to put your faith in Christ, but for whatever reason lately, you've just become so consumed with the things of this world. And you just need to be reminded of what matters most. To rededicate your life to God and to say, you know what, God, I, a relationship with Christ at the end of it all, that is what's going to matter the most. And so I want to seek you above all things. If you pray this prayer with me, we want to help you. We don't want this just to be a prayer that you pray and then you forget about it. We want to help you start a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so if you pray this with me as you're walking out today or when you get to your car, text the word BEGIN to 555-888 and we're going to send you some free materials. We don't want anything from you. We just want to get you started in the right way. You can also stop off at the Next Steps area as you walk out of your campus as well. Let's pray together. God, if there's anyone here today who is unsure of what road they're on, God, right now, they're going to step off the wide road and onto the narrow road. And for those who are choosing to do so, God, they're just praying this prayer with me in the quietness of their mind. Lord, I have sinned. I have done things that you didn't want me to do. God, would you forgive me? I do believe, God, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he rose again. And I believe that by putting my faith in him, I too can have eternal life. God, I pray that you would save me. And I surrender my life to you. God, there are others of us who we may be on the narrow road, but we've just gotten so off track lately. And we've just been so focused on the things of this world. And we need to be reminded of what matters the most. And that's our relationship with you. And so God, right now in this moment, we recommit ourselves to you. We recommit to having you be the top priority in our life. God, I thank you that you are a God who wants everyone to be saved and who loved us so much that you would send your son. God, we can never thank you enough for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Text the word begin. Otherwise, have a great weekend, everybody.